Well, good morning to you all. I uh, don't know that I'm up here to straighten you out. I haven't got me straightened out yet. <laughs> it's a constant thing that we're working on, as Mr. Armstrong was saying in that letter. It's it's too bad in a way that as we begin this sermon, uh, all of you will be hearing this later on tape, did not get to hear Mr. Armstrong's letter read because it takes us right back to the very basics of what this is all about. It was a letter that he wrote to newly baptized people years ago. I don't know when the letter was written, but it's the first time I believe that I have heard of it. Of course, on the other hand, I find notes in my Bible. Somebody will say something. I'll say, I never heard that before. And I go back here, and 20 years ago, there was a note in my margin that said exactly the same thing. So uh, the memory sometimes is faulty. But it was a very good letter showing what we need to do and the trials, troubles, persecutions, and difficulties that we will go through. And I couldn't help but reflect, as that letter was being read to us here, that some of the trials and troubles that he talked of were almost prophetic in that sense, considering what has happened to the church uh, since the time that he wrote that letter. And to begin today, I... What I want to do in the sermon is to go through and summarize what we have seen in the Minor Prophets series. It's by far the longest series of sermons I've ever given, but God laid it out here in the Minor Prophets, and it is a very, very important message for the church today that he has put here for us. But how did we come to this? Let's ask a few questions to begin with. We were all going along in Worldwide Church of God over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, well, I got the 10 wouldn't be the case, but 25, 30, 40 years ago, we were all fat, dumb, and happy, thinking we were fine. We were part of the end-time resurrection of God's truth, the world, and we were in the Philadelphia era. And I think we began fairly humbly, Uh, We realized, as we looked at ourselves, and I'm thinking back in my own experience as a child back in the 50s when we began to go to Big Sandy for the feast. It was the only feast that the church had at that time, having just moved down from Oregon. I think we were there the second year it was held in Big Sandy. But you talk about a Coxie's army of people uh, from all over the country, mostly poor, some living in their cars as they came, living in tents. Um, At times we had rainstorms there and and, uh, what we called a blue norther in Texas in those days came through. Um, I remember one year it just rained and rained and rained and your tent was wet, your clothes were wet, you were wet, and by the end of the feast we all smelled the same. Have you ever walked into a boy's locker room (laughs) or that type of thing. We all smelled moldy and wet and damp and not too good, I don't think. But I think at that time in the church, uh, we were in a sense small and meek and humble in that regard. We were just simply thankful to be there with all our hearts that God had opened the truth through the voice we heard on the radio, and that's the only place it was, was on the radio. And we would listen to XELO and XEG at night and could barely hear it, and it would come fade in and out with the static, and the car radio was sometimes better, and we'd all go sit in the car to listen. 
But we were not puffed up, proud, pompous uh, in that sense. I mean, we all had our personal vanities and egos and so on, as we always have. But what I'm saying is an overall view of the church was at that time thankful and grateful to God that our eyes had been opened and we could see. And I think that that occurred and continued until sometime at least into the 60s. The church was growing very rapidly, and I think we were just in awe of what God was doing and how God was building things up, and we heard reports from around the world, and this was so exciting to us that God's work was being done. For the first time in, as Herbert Armstrong said, 1900 years it was being proclaimed. But something happened. What was it that happened to us? Could we have dreamed at that time that we would be in the condition we are in today? Remember how we thought? 1972 comes, the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket, and by 75, Christ is going to be standing on the earth. 1975 and prophecy was the booklet. And we thought that we, as the Philadelphia era, were doing just fine and that we would be whisked off to a place of safety when that call came through our phone network that we had all through the church. Remember that? It was all set up. So that when the call came, or the sign from God, or whatever it was, the phone lines would get busy, we would all drop whatever we were doing and go to Petra. That was our vision of what was going to occur. And that has collapsed upon us. And I don't think we foresaw that at all. We were disappointed when things didn't come to a head. I, even in the late 60s, some began to say, and I was one of them, I don't think it's going to happen that fast, except and unless something really dramatic happened suddenly. It just didn't seem like the world stage was set yet. So we weathered that disappointment and went on. But Herbert Armstrong was a very astute man, on a spiritual level in many, many respects. And he began to see, he said, Laodiceanism creep into the church as early as 1969. I was a student at Ambassador College from 62 to 66, and I think I saw it creep into the student body as early as perhaps 64. When I first went there in 62, the student leaders were constantly talking with the students about the things of God and what was important. And some of them graduated and went out into the field ministry, and the leadership did not seem to be there anymore for the last couple of years of when I was there. Maybe it hit when I got there. <laughs> because I was student body president in 66 and I didn't feel the same spiritual strength and, and everything that had been there when I first arrived. Of course, maybe I was a wide-eyed freshman and, and didn't realize, but the students themselves, that I, what I saw from 62 to 66 was a change in the student body. No longer were we as focused on the things of God as a, as a whole student assembly as we had been when I first arrived there. The gymnasium had been finished while I was there, and I don't know, students' thoughts turned to sports and various other things, and not as much on the things of God as they had been. So perhaps what I was feeling in the student body itself and, and in my own self 
with what Mr. Armstrong began to detect in the church uh, as early as 69. Now, he went on to the world, basically, and began traveling all over the place, and others began to have greater influence on the church, and the church was in some way sort of left on its own. Uh, we still had Sabbath service, and we still had ministers, and we still had district superintendents coming, and so on. But it was like the work to the world was the big thing, and I think God intended that in great degree, because that was a time when he was calling a lot of people. And the growth needed to be there. Many had to be called so that few could be chosen. And we didn't understand what that meant at the time. And I don't think he fully grasped it, and he didn't need to, because he had a commission from God that he needed to fulfill. And I think he did that. Now we come on down toward the end of his life. And toward the end of his life, he began to realize that his um, focus on getting the message to the world had caused a lack in another area, and that is that the church was not being properly cared for. And he even rehearsed how it had been in the early years when he was first building congregations in Oregon, how that he would go into an area and he would have campaigns and so on, and new people would come, and then he would go back to his daily life and his broadcasting and so on, and wherever that had been and whatever little town it might be in, he didn't have a minister there, anybody to take care of the flock, and it would dissipate. It would fall away to nothing again which is why he realized he needed a college to train a ministry. And the problem developed that as his interest was with world, the world leaders and so on and, and preaching the gospel to the world, the other side of his commission, taking care of the sheep, began to be, uh, well, to fall into disrepair. The focus was not there on them. And he realized toward the end of his life that the church was off the track. The we, the people, were off the track. The ministry was off the track. He was off the track. And feeble as he was, those last few years, he tried to put the church back on track. You remember what he said. We've got to get back on the track. We've gone off. We've veered away. And right at the end of his life, he told Joe Tkach, my job is finished. I have preached the gospel to the world. Now get the church ready. Those were his specific instructions to the man who was going to succeed him. And the evangelists heard that. The ministry heard that. They heard that Mr. Armstrong had said, I finished this job. Now get the church ready. And almost to a man, we ignored him. And even yet today, those words have fallen on the ground. Now what happened? The church fell apart. The sheep were scattered. We began to have all kinds of problems that did not fit that vision of what we had had up until the time the scattering began. But he was astute enough to understand the dynamics of what were about to happen. And he even told me in 1983, if I die, I'm afraid the church will fall apart. He had it figured out. He could see what was coming. Now, I don't think he understood it fully from a scriptural standpoint. But he could see what was happening and what had happened, and he realized we had a problem.
Well, now, in the meantime, from the time that we had been small and humble and smelly at the feast, we had grown pompous, we had grown vain, we had thought we were something far more special than what God viewed us as. We had made a transition from a church of little strength to presuming that we had a great deal of strength. We had even begun to feel that we were rich and increased with good spiritually, and how could God not help but take us to a place of safety and cause us to enter into his kingdom? That Laodiceanism Mr. Armstrong had noted and seen as early as 69 had become something that pervaded the whole church. It was everywhere. All the virgins slumbered and slept. But somehow we missed Mr. Armstrong's message. We missed understanding what he said, I guess because we had grown pompous, pompous and vain and egocentric in a spiritual way so that we didn't recognize our lack. We didn't recognize the danger that was there to the church that he so clearly saw. And therefore we were devastated when it began to fall apart and didn't go according to that little scenario or plan that we had envisioned. And here we found ourselves being scattered to the winds and didn't grasp it. And I think that there is a great percentage of even those who left worldwide and are now in other organizations or independent or wherever they are, I think we still miss that. Many still think, I am Philadelphian, the rest of you are Laodiceans. Now, it's not that we haven't at some point recognized Laodicea is here upon us, but it's so easy to point to the other guys and say, you guys are Laodiceans. I'm still a Philadelphian. And we are not going to resolve this problem until we point the finger at ourselves and say, I became a Laodicean. <coughs> An alcoholic does not ever overcome alcoholism until he says, Hi, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. If he goes to AA. But if he doesn't go to AA, he still does not solve the problem till he recognizes he has a problem and then begins to take steps to determine how to overcome it. What I had to do as a minister, as a member, as a begotten child of God, is finally point to myself and say, I am the problem. I am the Laodicean. I slumbered and slept. I lost my devotion to God. I got my mind on other things of this world so that my relationship with God suffered. And that is what anyone is going to have to do in order to resolve the problem that we are now facing. As long as we keep pointing the finger at each other and saying, we're the Philadelphians, you're the Laodiceans, this will continue just as it is and it will get much, much, much worse. We've not seen the end of it by any means. And I don't say that based on my own speculation of the matter. I say it based on a lot of scriptures that we have come to know and understand, I think, uh, from what God has showed us here in these minor prophets, and the major prophets for that matter. It's just that I've been uh, focusing on the minor prophets uh, to see the story. But I think we have to back off and take a look at what has happened and look at ourselves and realize that 
God is talking to me. He's not talking to somebody else. He's talking to me. I am the problem. If we could all grasp that, we would come a long ways toward getting our relationship with God straightened back out as it should be. Now, to go into a summary of what we have looked at here, I want to go back first and review a principle that actually Mr. Armstrong mentioned in that letter. Remember there toward the end he said, uh, the church is the mother of us all, we're the begotten children of God. Well, he was quoting Paul back here in Galatians. Chapter 4, verse 26. Galatians 4, 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Now he equates Jerusalem above, uh, coming to us as the mother of us all. And that was the reference that Mr. Armstrong was using. Over here in chapter 6, in verse 16, he further embraces that thought. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Now he's making a distinction here between physical Israel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that New Testament church which became the Israel of God. The Israel of old, physical Israel, is not of God anymore. Remember, Christ divorced Israel. He wanted nothing more to do with physical Israel under those circumstances. And remember what he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees there in Matthew 23, right down toward the end of the, uh, probably the last two verses. He said, I will have nothing more to do with you, I'm paraphrasing this, until you call those blessed whom I have sent. And he had just established the New Testament church and made a change in the ministry. He took all power, all authority away from the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And he made it very clear in Matthew 16, 18 that he was giving that power to the church. He told them in John 10 that he would not see them again until the second resurrection. So I have had it with you people. But I will build my church. And that will be spiritual Israel. That will be the Israel of God that Paul is talking about here. And you can go into Romans 9, 10, and 11 and see very clearly that, that's, that that is what he was bringing forth. Now I want to uh, confirm this back in Hebrews 12. It's a verse that I have used over the last four or five years almost continually to help us understand the basis of the sermons and the series I've been, given, been giving, and that is Hebrews 12, verse 22. He says, You're not come to Sinai, you're not with Moses and the Old Testament church here is the background. Verse 22, But you are come to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the physical Jerusalem on this earth, but the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and congregation of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, that is, Christians who have uh, repented, been baptized, and grown to qualify to be a part of the first fruits that Paul called the early New Testament church. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We don't look to Moses anymore. That's what the transfiguration was all about. This is my son. Hear you him. Not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus Christ. So Paul is making that 
statement here to a new covenant, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks, speaking of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that in type, the church now is Zion. The church now is the heavenly Jerusalem. The church has become the Israel of God. He has offered you and I a marriage covenant, a marriage to the Lamb. 144,000 will comprise that bride, as shown in Revelation 21 and other places. We just didn't grasp years ago that the first resurrection is severely limited. uh, Revelation 14.4 clearly states of the 144,000, these are the first fruits. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, in this gospel to the world thing that we had going, that Mr. Armstrong was to do, and I don't uh, deny that whatsoever, he was given that commission in Matthew 28, 19-20, to go to all nations and baptize people, of all, people from all over. And that is the commission that he fulfilled. But we didn't understand, and he never fully understood, what the 144,000 represent as the entire bride of Christ, and that those were the first fruits. I think God limited his understanding on that very much on purpose, so that he did not say, well, I only have to preach until 5 o'clock on Tuesday the 14th of, uh, you know, 1973, and then I'm done, because we only need so many. God left it open-ended in that man's mind so that he continued to reach out, and therefore the Father could choose and call whom he wanted out of all those that that broadcast reached. But God had a finite number in mind. He only needed to call so many, and no man can come unless the Father draw him. So when he had reached that point, he began to cut Mr. Armstrong's uh, attention from that and back to the church because God said, I've got enough called now to finish the number that I need. I already got... Enoch and Abel, and I've already got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and and various others of the Old Testament. I've got those that I sealed during uh, the early New Testament church with Paul, Peter, James, John, and so on. Those are all safely in the fold, dead in the grave waiting. And now I need X number left. I have no idea how many he needs out of this end-time work. But he knows. And he knew that enough had been called to accomplish that except for a few at the 11th hour. And he is still calling a very, very few. But the work of those who are doing that, or trying to go out to the world, is very, very limited. And millions, though they may spend, they're not getting much result. Because God simply has called the majority of those that he needed to call, and now he's beginning to choose. Many are called, few are chosen. Mr. Armstrong began to focus on the church those last four, five, six years of his life. He began to realize, well, we got all these people here, but they're not ready. Now get busy getting the people ready. So I'm not saying that preaching the gospel wherever we have opportunity is necessarily wrong, but he even told the two witnesses in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, take care of the altar, the ministry, get them straightened out, get the uh, the court, the, the temple straightened out. He's talking about the temple there. And he says, leave out the court of the Gentiles. Forget about them. 
Your job is Haggai and Zechariah rebuild the temple, get the people ready. So that is the focus that God has narrowed in on now. Now, with that background, let's go back to uh, Hosea. And let's understand, in that light, what has happened. Now, God did some strange things with some of his prophets at times. You remember, uh, the word the name won't come to me, Ezekiel, laid on his side for <laughs> 390 days. And God even bound him down so he couldn't turn over. He had to lay on that same side for that many days for Israel and then 40 for Judah. And God told him when he laid him down there, I want you to cook your food, get so much food out there so that you can cook each day laying on your side, and uh, I want you to use human dung to cook it with. That seems strange. And Ezekiel didn't appreciate it either. So he says, can I at least use cow dung? Well, yeah, okay. You can use cow dung. And other strange things. Isaiah ran around naked for three years. Uh, you, you would think somebody was totally cracked. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> Some strange things that God did. And now with Hosea, he tells him, go out and marry yourself a hooker. Go marry a woman of whoredoms. Well, that seemed to be a strange request. And Hosea was willing. I mean, I don't know what God may lay upon us in this end time. And maybe we won't, any of us have to do some of these strange things that occurred then. But, but for God was making a very dramatic point. And God was very serious about all these things that he had Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and various other ones act out as a symbol of Israel. Now we are God's chosen generation today. We are those he has called out of this world. We are his particular people. Uh, we are called to be kings and priests with Jesus Christ. We are called to be a part of the first fruits. So this is a very, very deep and serious calling that God has laid on you and me. And for these prophets to act this out shows the degree of seriousness that God had, okay? Now, what does it have to do with us? I had always looked at all these prophecies back here as basically having to do with physical Israel. And we went to Isaiah and read millennial things, and certainly they do apply to the millennium. But there's an awful lot back here that is dual in the sense that it applies first to the church, then to physical Israel. And the things that are acted out back here have to do with you and me just as much as they have to do with these Israelites out here around us in this country today who are not keeping God's Sabbath, who have no clue as to who God is or what he's doing on this earth. Mr. Armstrong often said the Bible was written to the church. And I don't think he even grasped how specifically the Bible is written to the church. Because many of these things that we are now seeing back here in the prophecies, I don't think we could have understood until the things started happening in the church that happened to the church. 
how could the scattering of Israel, how could we make the connection that this is talking to the church until the church began to be scattered, see? It, it was once these prophecies began to come alive, to happen, to be current events, that it was possible to look at this and say, this isn't just talking about physical Israel, this is talking to us. And as we get, went through this series and, and examined these scriptures, we found many spiritual references in here that a physical Israelite would not understand. It's a message directly to us. Now, it will happen because God is so incredibly precise and so capable that he could write something thousands of years ago that would occur in the church and then immediately thereafter or even concurrently would occur to Israel as a whole. What an incredible God that he could foresee all this and know what would happen, that he could call a church out and that we would become spiritually fat and proud and think we were A-OK -okay, and then he would have to jerk the rug out from under us. See, he understands human nature. He understands how our heads work. He understands that all is vanity in our approach to life and that it's so easy for us to get puffed up. And he knew that he would have to spew the church out. So, with that background, we go to Hosea and Hosea's main name means the same as Joshua, Savior, or Yahweh saves. And when we get done with this summary of these books, we'll see that in the end... God shows he's going to save both the church, all Israel shall be saved, as Paul said in Romans 11, and basically all the church will be saved before he's done. That does not mean that there will not be weeping and gnashing of teeth and that some will lose out, but God is a success. He will be a success. He is a father, and he's not going to have an awful lot of stillbirths. He is going to see his plan through, and most of the church is going to be saved. It's, though, a little bit like the rich man going through the eye of the needle, or the camel going through the eye of the needle, excuse me. Rich man do, do the same thing to him. It alters the camel considerably. And God is going to alter you and me as much as is necessary to get us to fulfill the purpose for which he created us. We can either alter ourselves ahead of time or we can wait for him to alter us. Now, which do you prefer? I think we would all prefer to alter ourselves, but the spirit is willing and the flesh indeed is weak. And that's the problem we face. But what did he do with Hosea? He had him marry this woman of whoredoms and he had her children named, specific names that had a meaning. He was going to cause the kingdom of Israel to cease in verse 4. Uh, verse 6, he called one lo ruhama, which means I will no more have mercy, but I am going to tear things apart. Verse 9, one named Loami, you are not my people and I will not be your God. God turned his face away and God has done that to the church today. There's a scripture in Isaiah that says he has turned his face from us. He can't bear to look at our spiritual condition. He looks to the humble. He looks to the meek. And if we proudly say, I'm a Philadelphian, and I'm better than you Laodiceans, he can't stand that attitude. 
He cannot stand that approach. Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise, and it causes all kinds of problems in our relationship with God, because he looks to the meek and the humble and the merciful. He does not look to those who will lift themselves up in pride and say, I'm better than the rest of you. I'm okay spiritually, but you're not. That is a scary attitude to get into, and God hates that. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So chapter 2, he says, plead with your mother. Remember, Jerusalem above, the church is the mother of us all. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. We've got a, he divorced physical Israel. He has us betrothed to marry Jesus Christ, but that marriage has not yet taken place because the bride is not ready. The bride has to get herself prepared. So he really is not our husband at this point. We're between marriages. We're divorced as physical Israelites, but we have not remarried as spiritual Israelites to Jesus Christ. And if he says, if we don't put our adulteries from between our breasts, he will strip us naked. Verse 4, and I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be children of whoredoms. So we have worldwide, which went into paganism, and went into all kinds of whoredoms, and we had daughters that came out from worldwide, and he said, I will not have mercy on her children either. And look at us. We are continuing to be scattered. Uh, there's one place there, I think it's in Jeremiah 50 or 51, that says, my sheep go from mountain to hill, from bigger groups to smaller groups, ever smaller groups. The bigger ones divide. The smaller ones divide again. He will have breaches and clefts, he says. I think we'll get to that probably in a little bit. So I will not have mercy upon her children, for their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, and that's exactly what the Tkach bunch did. But that doesn't make us A-OK either, because we had gotten into Laodiceanism ourselves. And we came out of there saying, you guys are pagan, or you guys are Laodicean, but we're still Philadelphian. And the very fact of standing up in pride makes us Laodicean. My spiritual condition is okay. It has been the posture, basically, of those children of our mother. And I think, I don't think, I know, we have to reverse that in our own minds and our own hearts and not point at anyone else and say that they are not what they should be because we are not what we should be. Now, they aren't either, but it doesn't do us any good to point our fingers at them, whoever them is, because we are the problem. These are Laodiceans. I I'm Laodicean. I am a reforming Laodicean, I hope. I hope I'm getting over it. I hope I'm repenting of that spiritual pride that we came to have in worldwide before it began to come apart. But he's going to put us through a lot. Verse 11 of chapter 2, I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she says, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. 
So God is going to continue to tear things down. Um, it's talking about now, chapter 3, verse 5, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord in his goodness in the latter days. Not in the millennium, the latter days. God is going to send us a leadership that is going to take care of us like David took care of the sheep. David is a type here. Now, ultimately, of course, David is going to be resurrected and take care of physical Israel in the world tomorrow, in the millennium. But before that, <coughs> God is going to give us leadership that is like David, that will gently lead, that will take care of the flock. David went out there and took care of those sheep year after year and saved them from the lion, from the bear, and so on, and gently cared for the sheep. God is going to give that to us in the latter days. But we're going through a lot first. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 5. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, down in verse 6, the end of it. Uh, that you shall be no priest to me, seeing that you've forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. That's you and me. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Does that echo the words I just said describing Worldwide Church of God? As we were increased, we began to slack off and forget God in our lives. Verse 10, For they shall eat and not have enough. Famine. They shall commit whoredom, and they shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the eternal. They were heeding the eternal originally, but they left off to do so, he says. You can see the parallels of the church here. I don't think I have to draw this picture too clearly. Uh, it's, just, it's just in here. We can look at this and say, boy, this happened to us. So obviously the message is for us. Verse 14, will I not punish your daughters? The, pe the people that does not understand, into verse 14, shall fall. Remember Daniel, about how many will fall? And he's talking about the end time there, obviously in Daniel talking about those who of us who are in this last generation of the church. And then he addresses the priests in chapter 5. Hear you this, O priests, and hearken you house of Israel. That's the ministry of today, not just of the Methodists and the Baptists in this world. God is upset with his own ministry. Well, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time proving that. I mean, all I have to do is look around and see that Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 and Malachi are being fulfilled in the ministry today. God is taking the flocks away. <coughs> so the very fact of this fulfillment shows that God is talking, not just to the priests of Baal out here in physical Israel, but he's talking to the church. I mean, why would this be happening if God were not in the same posture and attitude toward the church as he is toward physical Israel? I mean, if we were doing what we were supposed to be doing, God would not be scattering us. He says back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, If you will obey, I will bless you, and you will have peace and unity and harmony. If you disobey, I will scatter you among the nations. Well, that is a principle of God that applied to physical Israel, and obviously now it is applying to the church as well. So obviously we have not been in the attitude and spirit that God wanted us to be in, or this would not be happening to us. I mean, there's cause and effect, as Herbert Armstrong drilled into us year after year. Then in chapter 6, he turns 
Well, let's see. Let's let's look at the uh, last verse of five of first. I will go and return to my place. I said, I'm going to go back and sit on my throne and turn my head from you till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. So in this affliction that God has put on the church, some are already beginning to wake up. Some are beginning to study like they've never studied before. Some are beginning to pray like they've never prayed before. Some are beginning to get serious about this and turn back to God. So we can already see, even in the first book here of Hosea, that God says, I'm going to do this to your mother, I'm going to do this to the daughters, but some will seek me early. In the affliction that comes on the church, some will begin to wake up. And that's what happened to the ten virgins. They all slumbered and slept. And then they began to wake up. And some, well, they all began to check their lamps for oil. It was dark. We're in pretty dark spiritual condition right now. And some are beginning to wake up <coughs> and check their oil and see if they can keep the light going. Others are still sleeping right on. So many moved right out of Worldwide into another organization and thought, well, now we're okay, we're safe. Sat down went right back to sleep. I don't intend to let that happen to you and me. As much as lies within me through the Spirit of God to keep you awake and keep waking you up and waking me up. Because it's so easy to get tired and weary and back off and think, well, oh, I'm okay now. We cannot afford to do that. We've got to endure to the end and fight patient, fight the battle all the way through. We cannot afford to go back to sleep. And I look around and I see it happening and I can see it happening to me and I have to stir myself up and say, I cannot afford to go back to sleep. Oh, just hit the snooze alarm again, would you? <laughs> cannot do that. We can't afford ourselves that luxury. Chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. See, that's much like the book of Lamentations, where God said there over and over again, especially in chapter 2, I have done this to you. This isn't something that just sort of accidentally happened to the church. God spewed us out of his mouth. And then he says, after two days he will revive, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. And then he will give us the, the rain, the latter and the former rain. In other words, that's um, typical of blessing, the rains that came in a desert land, former and the latter rains. So God is going to return blessing. Verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. And he goes on and on, talking about the priests doing murder and so on. Chapter 7, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. Now, Israel, I think, represents the whole church, both tribes in that sense. But then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. Who's Ephraim? The firstborn. He changed the birth order and made Ephraim the firstborn there in Jeremiah, I think it's 23 or 31. At any rate, he calls Ephraim the firstborn, and who is the firstborn? It's the firstfruits. Those who are still candidates to be firstfruits that came out of worldwide, their iniquity also has been discovered. We the daughters. And he goes on to talk about that. Chapter 8, set the trumpet to your mouth. 
He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because we've transgressed the covenant. Verse 4, they've set up kings, but not by me. We have people who are setting themselves up now as being the leading minister, or the only minister, or that prophet, or whatever phraseology they want to use. I'm the big wheel here. God says, oh, they set up kings, but they're not of me. God is going to send us leadership, but it's going to be in his time and in his way, and we're going to see that as we go on through here. They've made princes, and I knew it not, of their silver and their gold, have they made them idols, that they may be cut off, and I think that we are tending as the daughters of the church to make ourselves idols, because we think we're doing God's work. And many of us have forgotten what God's work really is and what he told Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That was the emphasis. He also told him to go to the world. But the main emphasis just before he died was take care of my sheep. And if you read the New Testament, you'll find that the New Testament administration basically was that. They went to the world to some degree, but where did Paul go? He went to the different churches. Well, I don't want to spend too much time here. I wanted to lay this background, though, of where we came from on this and what is important here. Uh, let's see. Chapter 9, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people, for you have gone a-whoring from your God. And we can go to the feast now and say, Oh, we're just fine. We're God's church. But he says, Wait a minute. You have not been faithful to me and your hearts, your minds, your attitudes. You've not been building your relationship right with your father in heaven and your your husband-to-be. Verse 8, The watchman of Ephraim was with, was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. Do we have trouble understanding why there's resentment against the ministry today? The ministry has not given us what we should have. And we have to repent and give you what you need. The ministry today, basically, overall, likes to preach smooth things. They don't want to offend the people. They want a following. And the followings are diminishing. So they're trying to do everything they can to remain popular and keep the following of the people. Isn't that what Saul had a problem with? God said, yes, when you were small in your own eyes and went and hid among the baskets when I tried to anoint you king, you were fine. But you came, became bloated in your own mind of your own importance and set yourself up and as a result I can't use you anymore Saul and that's where God is with the ministry today we're of no use basically to the people and we're of no use to God and the ministry needs to repent just as much as the people do sorry about that but that's just the way the cookie crumbled chapter 10 Israel is an empty vine he brings forth fruit to himself According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars, increased the churches. According to the goodness of his land, they have made godly image. But what's the problem? Their heart is divided. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And we're trying to ride this fence with the world and at the same time serve God and it doesn't work because God wants wholeheartedness. He cannot have a divided mind and heart. For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord. Don't we say that today? Our king is dead, our counselor has perished, as Micah 4.9 says, or 4.8, whichever verse it is. 
And that's the condition we're in. Herbert Armstrong died, and we have no overall leader. We have some wannabes, but we don't have any overall leader that we can all respect and look to the way we look to that man. This is exactly the condition in the church today. Now, what is the instruction? And I this, this is something I don't want to miss here as we go quickly through these now, is what is the proper response to these problems that we are having in the church today? What does God expect us to do about it? You and me, not those other guys, but us. Chapter 10, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, that which has become hard and unusable, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you did trust in your way. We're Philadelphians, we're doing okay, we've trusted in our way of looking at things. In the multitude of your mighty men, therefore shall a tumult rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be spoiled. Our churches, our organizations are coming down. And it isn't done yet. So shall Bethel do to you, verse 15, because of your great wickedness. Any morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Herbert Armstrong died in the morning. Remember what I said about the church in the earlier years, in the 50s and 60s? When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. He uses the type here. I drew them like the cords of a man with bands of love, and God gently and tenderly built the church and blessed the church. But then the backsliding occurred, verse 7. And God has been upset. Chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. These things will happen with physical Israel, but the firstborn... Ephraim, the church, <clears throat> is also going other directions than what God wants us to go in. <clears throat> now, notice verse 8, And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich, I have found me out substance. Does that remind you of God's instruction of the latest sins in Revelation 3? I'm rich, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. Yeah, they, but the ministry likes to preach the smooth things. You're Philadelphian, as long as you're with me, you're okay. We'll, we'll all go in together because we're the Philadelphians. Smooth and easy things, and the people love to have it so. They want to be lulled back to sleep. Oh, we can talk a little repentance. You know, we can, we can say, well, we need to get closer to God. But I think we have been overlooking the very deep meaning of these things, that God wants us to repent from the heart. He doesn't want lip service. He wants us to change our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our attitudes. He wants meekness and humility. And he'll have it. One way or the other, he will have it among his people. And he will squash us like bugs until we repent and become humble and meek again. We ain't seen nothing yet of what's going to happen to the church. Now, I didn't see all this before it started to happen because I couldn't equate these scriptures to the church. But now that I see that they equate to the church, I see in these scriptures that what is happening is going to get much worse. It isn't anywhere near done yet. Now, let's go on to the book of Joel. 
Well, wait a minute. Let's go the, the last verse of Hosea. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Well, the commentators and all the commentaries thought they were wise and understood this referred to physical Israel. We in the church, over the years, the decades, <coughs> would go back <coughs> and pick some references out of the minor prophets, but we didn't really focus on this as a message to the church. We just thought it was only to physical Israel. So that is the understanding of this world's scholars, and that was basically the understanding of the church. But now God asks a question here. He says, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? In other words, that which would automatically appear is not the correct understanding, or not the whole understanding, might be a better way to put it. Prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. And people are beginning to fall all around us. Ten thousand at our left, right hand, and a thousand at our left hand. I transpose that, but you get the point. People are falling spiritually. Your friends, my friends, my relatives, your relatives are falling from the grace of God and from the understanding that we once had. It's sad to see, and it could happen to you and me just as easy as it happened to my brother, my sister, my uncle, my aunt, my cousin, my, you know, my good friends. I've seen some of them fall. I, I had a friend that was like a brother for years. Now he's preaching in a Methodist church and a Lutheran church, as far as I know. He was never in the ministry of the Church of God, but <laughs> he has lost everything, but virtually. And you know people like that, and you've been in danger of that yourself. All right, so he lays out here for us what the problems are and what he's going to do to the church. Then he tells us that some will understand. That echoes what Daniel said, but the wise shall understand. Then we go to the book of Joel. And Joel's word means the Lord is God. So God then turns, comes a little bit direction, different direction, or comes from a little different direction with Joel. And he says, Now what I want to establish in your hearts and minds, who is God? I am God, he says. Now that is the first point that has to be established then if we're going to come to an understanding and to restore ourselves to what God wants us to be. We've got to understand who God is. Not just to know there is one. There are a lot of people who know there is one. But we have to know that Moses God is God. To quote from the Exodus and, Mo and uh, Charlton Heston and the, uh, Pharaoh. We've got to get this in mind. So God put the book of Joel in here as the next chapter in these books of the minor prophets. And he flashes forward to the day of the Lord, and he talks about the deplorable condition spiritually that will be in the church and in Israel. And how he will spend or send spiritual famine as he gets on later into in the book of Amos, not just physical famine, but spiritual famine. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Howl, you ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. God is not inspiring. God is not giving. We've got a lot of 
milk toast sermons now coming from all over the church, whatever organization. Got some pretty good ones, but we got an awful lot of milk toast and lull you back to sleep stuff coming out too. God is not happy when he tells them to fast, tells us to fast. The day of the Lord is at hand. It's almost here. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Verse 16, yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Don't we feel burdened and frustrated and resentful and upset overall with what is happening around us? See how this applies to the church? It's not just physical Israel. Verse 19, he says at the end of it, the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Trees are symbolic of churches in these prophecies. And the churches are going to get burned up. Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about the sheep being scattered all over the hills. Churches torn down. Isaiah 5 talks about many great and fair ones being torn down. Zechariah 11 <coughs> talks about it. We'll get to that later on. This is supposed to be a summary, though, isn't it? And here I am just in Joel, and... Wow. Okay. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Well, chapter or verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. What's his holy mountain? Mount Zion, Hebrews 12. It's the church. Sound an alarm in my church. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. He calls us Zion there in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Call a solemn assembly. You're going to call a solemn assembly of these physical Israelites out here? They wouldn't know what in the world a solemn assembly would be. This isn't just talking to them. Now, in a larger sense, it could refer to the Methodists and the Baptists who need to get this picture and need to call a, a solemn assembly in Israel. But they're not going to do it. The only ones that have a chance to do it are the church because we are of God and we understand God so that's where it has to be blown verse 17 let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say spare your people see the focus here isn't on the world it's the porch and the altar the ministry and that with which it has to do and pray Spare your people, O Lord, and give not your inheritance to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Look at the church today. What do we have to brag about? Before we had the auditorium. We had the hall of administration. We had offices around the world. We had campuses. We could begin to say, We're God's people. And now people say, Well, what church do you go to? Duh. <laughs> about the only response we have well you see we had this big church and it kind of split up and it kind of split up and it kind of split up and we're sort of the off scourings of a split of the last split we don't have a whole lot to brag about do we where is their God where is that God that was going to lead them into safety and on into the kingdom of God where, where did all these wonderful dreams that we thought we had and this vision we had, where did it go? Well, it went down the tubes of Laodiceanism. That's where it went. And we'll see an answer a little later as we go on. Verse 27, he gives us a glimpse forward. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. He's going to turn this around. Right now we're saying... Where the people are saying, where's their God? You know, that Armstrong joke. But God's going to turn it around. He's not done yet. 
It shall come pass to pass afterward, verse 28, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. God is going to show who is God. The Lord, uh, let's see, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. The church is going to be there to deliver us after all. As the Lord has says, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. And we're going to see that word remnant a whole lot more here as we go on. So, verse 21 of chapter 3. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The church is where he dwells. He is, we are the temple of God, and he lives his life in us. Then on to the book of Amos, and there's more warning here. He talks about in the first few chapters, it's called burden. Amos means burden. Um, and then he begins to pronounce specific uh, curses on specific peoples. And these, of course, refer to uh, physical Israel as well, but they also refer to uh, the church. They refer to our enemies, Moab, Ammon, so on. And he talks about the transgressions of Judah and Israel, the church. We're spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear an alarm. Let's let's be Philadelphians, and, and God's going to save us after all. And God says, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. A heavy weight that we're putting on God. Chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, the church, against the whole family. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This God's church is the only church. He only knew physical Israel. He didn't know the Gentile nations. He called and chose Israel, and he's called and chosen a spiritual people as well. And then he says, verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And he has revealed those secrets right here. And what he is doing to the church and what we are seeing, we find right here in these pages. We just didn't see it before. We didn't recognize it until it began to happen to us. And now we're on the timeline. We can see it happening. And we can keep reading forward here in these books, and we're going to see what's going to happen next. Because we're on the timeline. We can now see the progression. Some of the things we've talked about already today are history in the church. God has already begun to tear us apart. Chapter 4, verse 6. I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me. So where... Here is where we are right now. God has set us a spiritual famine. He's given us cleanness of teeth. In other words, you're not eating, therefore your teeth stay clean. Yet you've not returned to me. We've not turned to God with our whole hearts yet. We still give God lip service and we still go to church, but we haven't made our hearts so that they have their undivided attention is on God. It's still divided as we read earlier. Also, I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, close to the harvest, 
and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. Some ministers are still giving pretty good sermons in whatever organization, and some are not. So there's rain some places, and some places there's not. Verse 8, So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned to me? And then he talks about having smittenness with blasting and mildew and so on. The, the spiritual things that we're trying to do are falling flat before us as a whole, as, as the overall church. And that's exactly where the church is now. I mean, you came here from different cities, different places. I came from a different state altogether to be here with you because we have to go from here to there looking for the truth. That's exactly where we are in prophecy right now. And we can still find it if we look hard enough. That's what he's saying here. But because the overall church has not returned to God into verse 10, he says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, verse 12, O Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That gives me chills to think about it, because I'm not ready to face my God with him angry. Verse 5, Hear you this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O church of God. The virgin of Israel has fallen and shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Do you know of anybody? Quick, give me an answer. Is there somebody out here who is going to raise us all up? There are different ones trying. We can't agree among ourselves. The ministry can't agree among themselves. I hear rumors of more divisions and splits that may come different organizations hear them all the time and then once in a while a split actually occurs I split from the one I was in see this continues getting worse now he gives us another clue down here there's none to raise her up for thus says the Lord God the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel We've probably got little groups of different organizations meeting right here in Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati today. We didn't used to have this. We used to have hundreds of people meeting together. And they all agreed with each other. And they're all in one organization. And you have the local feast, and they came from all these cities, and you had, if not hundreds, perhaps thousands even, in the whole area here. Now we're down to a piddling few, even in the bigger organizations, by comparison. So God is doing this to us. Chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, and so on. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands, and he will smite the great house with breaches, the great house with the worldwide church of God, the big one. It's smitten with breaches, and the little houses with clefts. Can we deny it by any means that this is talking about what's happening to the church today, that it doesn't just apply to physical Israel, but applies to us? Because we see the great breach and we see the clefts in the little houses. For you have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. You which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? We still have people who are not willing to recognize what is happening and has happened and is going to happen and are still trying to say uh, that 
<coughs> we're rejoicing that things are wonderful in our work, but it's a thing of naught. There's nothing really happening anywhere. Come on, let's be honest. Nowhere, including here. We're just struggling to repent. We're struggling to get our heart undivided and to turn to God with our whole hearts. That's what God wants of us now. And he's not going to start doing a work of any magnitude until he has a humble, prepared people. And then he will draw that remnant together. Verse, chapter 7, verse 2, end of the verse. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. And then he talks a little later on here in the same chapter about a plumb line. I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. We'll see that a little later on when we get into Zechariah. And Revelation, he gives the witnesses a plumb line. He appoints a leadership, and he gives them a measuring line to measure the church and the altar and them that worship therein, Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Verse 15, And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear you the word of the Lord. You say, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not your word against the house of Isaac. That's what they would say. Don't prophesy against the church. You're talking the church down. Don't say these things. We're Philadelphians. Well, yeah, you're right. The Laodiceans are out there. <laughs> See, we've got to get personal about this. It's not those Laodiceans. It's us Laodiceans. And we have to give a warning to ourselves and to the church. Because not many will. And if I fail to, then I'm the same as everybody else. <clears throat> I don't like to be mean. I don't like to be hard. I don't like to re preach repentance. I don't like to lay repentance on me. I hate to repent. I hate to feel guilty. I hate the sin that I still see within me. And I don't like to approach it. I would like to ignore it and go on blithely doing something else. But I can't afford to because I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want to be a holy, righteous bride of Christ. <coughs> and I'm so far from it that I must repent. I must change. I must bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. I can't afford not to. Because it's not a matter of just getting good enough to be in the church and good enough to be in the kingdom. I have to please my coming husband with all my heart and attend to his every wish and want and desire. Those that please God are the ones he looks to. Now we read about a partial famine in chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 8. Verse 11, Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to shining sea. And from the north even to the east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. We go from partial famine in chapter 4 to total famine in chapter 8. It simply will not be available. Now that should give us a clue that the organizations are going to be torn down. Will it come as a result of the financial collapse that Zephaniah talks about? The money stops and the preaching stops. The money stops, the organizations stop. 
and we're going to have a time of utter confusion and people will search and they won't find it. Now there's only one place they'll be able to go. That's what Christ told the virgins, go to them that have and buy. The only place he's going to be giving the golden oil is through the work of the two witnesses in the church, the remnant that come to them, Zechariah 4. That's the only place it's going to be because the rest is going to be torn down. I hope we recognize them when they show up. But nine-tenths of the church are going to ignore them. Only a remnant. A small tithe, Isaiah 1.9. A total famine is coming. <clears throat> I saw the Lord, chapter 9, standing on the altar. Where, where are the witnesses supposed to straighten out first? The altar, and then the worship therein. And the Lord said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that flees of them shall not flee away, and he that escapes of them shall not be delivered. So this is going to be a total famine, and God is going, for those who do not repent, God is going to bring the tribulation on them. A remnant will be faithful and will return to God with their whole heart, and they will be included and will go to a place of safety or perhaps be martyred, depending on what God wants to do with them as individuals. Verse 11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches, the clefts, the breaches, the holes in the wall thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Unity, peace, harmony, one leadership again. Well, this is a summary, so I better keep moving. Obadiah, is a, is a book that talks about our enemies. Edom, Esau, has been an enemy of Israel ever since the original Jacob and Esau. And it says, wherever Israel goes, they will follow. And since we're applying this to the church now, uh, I went through this in the sermon on Obadiah and showed that we had Edomites that came in the church. Even Stan Rader and Joe Tkach are Edomite Ashkenazi Jew names, Ashkenazi Jew names. The Nazis have their roots in Edom, Edom and Assyria. And God prophesied that Edom would try to destroy Jacob throughout their existence. So God, or Satan, and Edom are trying to destroy the church now and have done a pretty good job of it, if you go back to what happened in Worldwide with what the Tkachas and Stan Rader did. And it says here that even physical Israel is going to go into captivity and there are scriptures that indicate that Esau will rise up above them. So Esau is part of the end-time confederacy of Psalm 83 and Isaiah 8 that is going to come against both the church and physical Israel. They will be some of the leading destroyers in both the church and our nations. And God talks about them laughing and standing in the way and adding to our calamity. So we will never, as Jacob, as spiritual Israel, escape from Esau and Edom until we go into a place of safety and protected there because Satan will send a flood after the church and try to destroy it even at that point. And then when the witnesses go out against the world, Satan will try to destroy them and God will not allow it, but he will allow them to torment the people on this earth. So Esau is going to be around all along. Then we skip to the book of Jonah. And here we have a warning for all of us. Because Jonah saw what God wanted done, 
and Jonah was unwilling to do what God said to do. And we could extend that principle, I think, to ourselves when we read these scriptures here about uh, turning to God with our whole heart and seeking righteousness and seeking to be just like God and Jesus Christ and pleasing our Father and our coming King and Ruler. We can look at those and say, man, that's too much. I don't want to do that. It's too hard. And we, Jonah, though, had his own particular acts he wanted to grind. He knew Assyria was scheduled to destroy unrepentant Israel. And he knew that if Nineveh was going to be destroyed for her own sins. So he figured, okay, let them be destroyed, and then they can't come and destroy Israel. So this was his thinking. And God says, no, go preach to Nineveh that they might repent. And, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I imagine he had all kinds of thoughts and emotions running through his heart and mind. He had the fear of not doing what God said. He had the fear that would that Israel would be destroyed if Assyria repented. Uh, and all of these frustrating emotions led to what? Rebellion. I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't follow the word of God. So he was a particular person, and there may very well be a specific Jonah here at the end who is not willing to do those things which God wishes done, or whatever his purposes might be. But I think the principle certainly applies to all of us to be ready and willing and eager to do whatever it is that God requires of us. Because we don't know how many Jonas there might be around. I'm one. Aren't you one? I'm a Jonah to the core. My body, my mind, my emotions rebel every day against the things God tells me in here I need to do. My spirit is willing, and I pray to God, help me do what you want me to do, and I go out and do something else. Or I get my attention diverted, or I take care of me, or, you know, a myriad of things that we do to keep from doing the things that God wants us to be doing. I, you know, there's not much at stake here. <laughs> eternal life, health and happiness forever and joy, uh, you know, just a few little things like that that we're overlooking. How am I doing for time? I, I didn't know exactly when we started. I got about ten minutes and I got about ten books left. Okay. No, no, no. I just wanted to know where I was. We, we can do this. I think. So let's go from Jonah <laughs> and I won't rebel against getting through with what I'm given to do here. The book of Micah is very interesting. He talks again about the incurable wound of Judah down in verse 9 of, uh, of chapter 1 and how we just don't seem to be as a church getting it together. And therefore we keep getting splintered and split. Um, let's see, how do I want to summarize this? I, I think I'll go right on down to chapter 4 because there's a lot of instruction here that begins to give us a glimpse of what God is about to do. You can go back and, and hear the whole sermon on it, or I think two were on this one. But in the last days, chapter 4, this is a prophecy for the last days. These days, not the first days of the millennium, but the last days of this age. That he is going to establish his government in the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. We'll see in Haggai how he draws a remnant and how he is going to put a righteous government here. And he tells us 
or gives us a description of ourselves here in uh, verse 6. In that day, says the Lord, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So what he is going to start doing with the remnant people is something that will never again be torn apart or destroyed. What he does with the church under the two witnesses, rebuilding it, according to Haggai, will never again have an end. That is the beginning of the restitution of all things. He's torn down the former temple that we were in under Herbert Armstrong, and he is selecting out of that different stones, and he's going to rebuild a latter temple with a remnant and with the leadership that he's going to send, and it will never again come apart. It will go right on into the kingdom of God. And you, O tower, or watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So he's going to give that latter temple power and authority and the right kind of government. Now, that is, right now, why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For the pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. And then he tells us, don't ignore this, but be in pain and labor and travail and give birth. That is the position God has put us in now. We're about to give birth, and he says, push, honey. That's what he wants us to do. Push and give birth. Because right now we don't have a counselor and a king as we did under Herbert Armstrong. And then he talks about her rising and threshing. He tells her to go and get out of the midst of Babylon, or to go to Babylon, actually, but get out of the middle of it and dwell in the fields. Uh, and many nations will gather against her. So persecution is going to come at some point, and we're to get out of the cities and go dwell in the field. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. And then he tells the daughter to arise and thresh. And we'll see a little later that the two witnesses are going to thresh this world. They're going to shake this world, just as Moses shook Egypt and destroyed it, and just as Elijah destroyed the prophets of Baal. This has to be done again on an international level. And it talks about 7, 8, 15 perhaps going out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. We're not going to Petra, we're going to stay in our land and we're going to face the Assyrian when he comes in. The church is going to march onto the center stage of this world. And Moses' snakes will eat Pharaoh's snakes. And fire will come out of the mouths and destroy. And plagues will come and blood and fire. This world is going to hate the church with every bit of passion within them. And it's not just the work of two men. The place of safety is in the mountains, the wilderness, and the desert. And it is going to be a place that is set on a hill that the world may see the light thereof. We're not going to cower in caves, folks. God is going to set his church on a hill. Isn't that what he tells us in Matthew? Set your light on a hill that it may be seen. This world's going to know where the church goes. They're going to send an army to destroy it as it goes there. And then a ministry is going to come out of there and confront this world such as it has never been confronted in Egypt or in Elijah's day. And it is going to be so dramatic it will shake this earth. And when they die, it is going to party, party over their dead bodies for three days. 
That is what is coming on this scattered little church that we are looking at today. Whatever organization we might be in, God is going to draw the faithful out of all the organizations. He's going to tear the organizations down. He's going to draw the people faithfully from wherever they are, and he is going to rebuild that church. And that's what Micah is talking about. Now we go to Nahum, and it's a prophecy against those who come and destroy Israel, the Assyrian. But in verse 15 it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn feast, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So he's telling the church, even though this nation is going to be destroyed by the Assyrian, <coughs> you can be saved out of it if you will perform your vows. If we will do those things that Mr. Armstrong wrote about in the letter to us as newly baptized people. If we will live up to the promises we made and perform our vows before God, he will take care of us in spite of the destruction. Habakkuk is a book that talks about when, O oh Lord, when is this going to come to pass? It means embrace or embracer. And Habakkuk asks these questions, and then God gives him an answer. And then finally Habakkuk accepts the answer. And we sit saying, when are all these things going to happen? And God tells us here, uh, chapter 3, revive the work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known, and wrath remember mercy. So at some point in time, the work of God is going to be revived. But it's going to be under the two witnesses. That is the government he is sending us. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. That's where the church is headed right now. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. So even though the church is coming apart in sections, we can joy in God. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief stringer, singer on my stringed instruments. So in spite of all this destruction, there is great hope for those who will respond to God. Then Zephaniah goes, talk, uh, goes into the time that uh, Joel spoke about, the day of the Lord. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, verse 2 of chapter 1. So he is going to turn it loose. And then chapter 1, the rest of it, describes a financial collapse. And finally, throwing the gold and silver in the streets. We have that imminent. It's coming up. We're here in the destruction of the church now. The destruction of the church is increasing. And God is about to tear down the government and the society, the, the monetary system that we have in place. It's about to happen. Chapter 2, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O nation, not desired, not desirable of God. The church has not been desirable. It's been being spewed out. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes a chaff, before the anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So he tells us, even though this collapse is coming and the churches come apart, if we will seek God with all our hearts, we may be saved from all of this. He goes on down and talks about the rebellion and so on. But he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the, God, of the Eternal. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, and so on. Verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
And then he goes on in and he tells us not to, not to let our hands be slack in verse 16, to work hard. Then he goes into Haggai where he says, I'm going to appoint Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant will be stirred up and come to them and they will work together with the people and they will build a church and it will have peace, chapter 2, verse 9. He says that the old people in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 will be there who, can, who will have seen Herbert Armstrong's church, the former temple, and will be able to compare it with the latter temple. So this is coming fairly soon while there's still old men around who can compare it. He's going to rebuild the temple. He goes into Zechariah and shows that our release will be after 70 years in chapter 1. And we're getting close to that from the time Herbert Armstrong started renewing uh, God's church in the latter days. Uh, we're getting close to the end of 70 years. <coughs> I don't know when God started counting. But then he says that we're to flee and that he will rebuild Jerusalem as a town without walls in chapter 2. He tells the church to deliver yourself. Uh, verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Or it says in other translations, Re Revised Standard, Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And then it says Christ is going to rise. Verse 13, Be silent of all flesh before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's going to take personal charge, and he's going to see this thing through. Then he talks about, Zechariah, about uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel and rebuilding the church and them giving oil to the church. Uh, compare that with Revelation 11. Then he goes on through the book of Zechariah and finally winds up with Christ returning to the Mount of Olives. So what is happening is happening in the church. Then the book of Malachi jumps all over the ministry. And he tells us at the very end of the book of Malachi that he will send Elijah the prophet and he will do everything to destroy this earth and go against it and make a witness before God. So that is what is going to happen. That's the end of the story. It's a beautiful end. I'm probably out at the end of the tape, too. <laughs>